This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington and coming up on African News Tonight... Africa might be a very small player as far as the global trade is concerned and so on, but the geopolitics and the geopolitical debates and the direction that uh, global politics are taking, they do suggest that Africa actually has a major role to play. That's uh, Frontline Group's Jason Musioko on how Africa's global clout appears to be growing. Details coming up. Also, there is hope that the U.S.-Africa Leaders' Summit will revitalize U.S. ties with Africa following the nosedive in relations during the presidency of Donald Trump. And the World Cup quarterfinals are underway in Qatar. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Reports that the M23 rebel group recently carried out a massacre of civilians in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo have underscored the difficulties in implementing a ceasefire. My colleague Esther Gitu Award spoke with Jason Stearns, founder and chair of the advisory board of the Congo Research Group at New York University on the challenges of fostering peace in an area where about 100 armed groups operate. So let's start off with the disturbing news about the M23 rebel group killing dozens of civilians in Kishishe. And uh, who and what will it take to stop uh, this kind of atrocities and to stop the M23 rebels from continuing with uh, this kind of violence? Well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, the two options on the table are military. So the idea that a military offensive led by the Congolese government with support perhaps from regional countries could stop the M23. That doesn't seem likely at the moment. The Congolese government is pumping a lot of weapons and ammunition. They're engaging in sometimes dubious tactics by creating alliances with local militia. They're throwing a lot at this. And yet, despite all of that, there seems to be very little progress. Quite to the contrary, actually, the M23 has made many advances in recent months on the ground. So it doesn't seem that the military option is what's going to bring this to an end. Uh, On the other hand, if you look at the history of this region and at the previous armed groups, the predecessors to the M23, uh, in 2013, the M23, there was another M23 uprising in 2008, there was a predecessor to the M23, the CNDP. What brought an end to those insurrections? Well, every time it was foreign pressure. And in particular, it was pressure on the Rwandan government by the donors to the Rwandan government, since the Rwandan government, at least then, was found to be backing the M23. And so I think this time, the most likely scenario is that, at least initially, diplomatic pressure will be brought to bear on the Rwandan government, the M23, and that that will be, that has the highest likelihood of of bringing an end to this escalation. But clearly, Jason, there's so many rebel groups operating in DRC. Why this scramble for Congo? And do you think the international community is paying enough attention to stop, the, to stop these atrocities? Well, you're very right to highlight that there are 120 different armed groups in the Eastern DRC. A lot of talk, obviously, about the M23, but the M23 is not the deadliest by far, actually, not the deadliest armed group in the DRC. There are others that hold that title. And so the the priority now is to bring an end to this particular escalation that's displaced over 200,000 people and really brought the whole 
the entire consumes all of the oxygen in the room when you're talking about the peace process, the demobilization process in the Congo. So that's the priority, but that's not the end game. I mean, even before the M23 arose, there were over 5 million people displaced in the Eastern Congo. And so I think that the important thing to realize is that there is a, a much broader question of peace and stability. Something wasn't working even before the M23 broke out. We didn't care about it then. There's a little bit of attention focused on that now, but but the, there's a bigger, broader problem. Now, you ask the question, are we doing enough? Now, the I think, as I said before, I think the solution here really has to be peaceful diplomatic options. And in particular, there is mounting evidence from the UN group of experts on the Congo, from Human Rights Watch, from our own researchers on the ground, that Rwanda has been backing the M23. The US government has confirmed this on multiple occasions. And yet the US government hasn't really done much besides confirm it. I, I saw that Secretary of State Tony Blinken had a call with Paul Kagame, uh, I believe today or yesterday. And so there has been more pressure from the US government. But at the same time, the US is isolated. Uh, the, the UK government has been very much backing the Rwandan government. They held the Commonwealth Summit, the head of state summit in Kigali. Uh, during the midst of this escalation, Prince Charles, at the time Prince Charles, Boris Johnson, went to Kigali. They celebrated the leadership of Paul Kagame in the middle of this whole escalation, in part because the UK has this asylum, this very controversial asylum deal to send uh, UK migrants who are applying for asylum to Rwanda for processing. So they've been quiet on the M23, and the French government has also been quiet on the M23, probably because the French government relies on Rwandan soldiers to protect French oil installations in Mozambique. And so it, the U.S. government is really quite isolated on this. And donors can do much, much more, I believe, in pressuring Rwanda to scale down. At the very least, Rwanda has in its power to bring an end to the M23 if it wanted to. And it hasn't shown that yet. That was Jason Stearns, founder and chair of the Advisory Board of Congo Research Group at New York uh, University, speaking with Africa 54's Esther Gitu Award. In the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, many young people have answered President Felix Teshikede's call to support the army to help fight the M23 rebels and restore stability to the region. But some in North Kivu province say the government has abandoned them. Our reporter in Goma, Zanem Natizaidi, has details. The president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, Felix Tshisekedi, recently called on young people to organize themselves into vigilance groups in order to support the armed forces. He also called on young people to enroll massively in the army. His appeal comes as M23 rebels have seized territory along the roads leading to Goma in North Kivu province. His remarks have aroused the interest of many young people in North Kivu, but for those living in Goma joining the war efforts remains a challenge. There are many young people who want to join the army, but they remain confined to the city. Some are waiting for a trip to the military training center, while others have received limited military training while they prepare for full admission into the military. But others are struggling to feed themselves and find shelter while they wait. Amisi Shombo is one of them. 
He says that young people suffer a lot. They spend the night under the stars without eating anything, and this has been going on for more than three weeks. He says there are many without access to food, but some are able to find porridge. He says that some of them have already died of hunger or disease under these conditions. They are waiting for the army to take care of them. The inhabitants of the neighborhoods where some of these young people live complain about the behavior of some military aspirants in the community who are waiting to receive comprehensive training. One local resident, Jacques Asifiwe, says due to the lack of supervision, some of these potential soldiers engage in acts of barbarism. He says people here are harassed and abused by many of these young people. Lately, there have been several incidents, including robbery, especially in the evening. That's when people pass by the areas where they are stationed while waiting for comprehensive military training. For its parts, several society members in North Kivu, including Placid and Zilamba, urge authorities to act quickly to stop the harassment and to train the new recruits to defend the country. Army recruiters would not officially comment on the matter. On condition of anonymity, a military source told us that the process of transferring these young people to their training centers is already underway. Zanem Netizaidi in Goma for VOA Africa. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Some political analysts say next week's U.S.-Africa summit is about the White House seeking to temper China's influence on the continent as well as its desire to rejuvenate relations with Africa. President Joe Biden's invited 49 of 54 African leaders to Washington for the three-day event beginning Wednesday, excluding some because they're heading military regimes. U.S. officials will talk with African counterparts about trade, climate change, mitigation, health, and much more. Darren Taylor has the report. To many African experts, the summit's going to be significant because of what's off the table as well as what's up for discussion. For example, U.S. and African officials have said repeatedly and very firmly that Russia's war in Ukraine is basically taboo. But the frontline group's Jason Musyoka is convinced it's what sparked the summit into life. The U.S. has theoretically suggested that Africa is an important partner and we've seen that kind of debate, Africa rising, we've seen all of that kind of rhetoric emerging, but it's been largely theoretical until lately or recently when you clearly can begin to see Africa's power on the global sphere. And the Ukraine-Russia conflict is one very good example where Africa voted as a bloc. And by the way, Musyoka says the Biden administration remains deeply unhappy that most African countries abstained from UN votes to condemn Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. In the past, he says, Africa's positions wouldn't have meant much 
as the continent was economically weak and politically fragmented, but with the continent getting stronger all the time, partly because of its partnership with China, and with it holding almost 30% of the UN vote, Africa can no longer be ignored. As a bloc, when Africa voted to abstain, that was very consequential for the U.S. to recognize this is not just theory. There is an emerging power, and uh, yes, Africa might be a very small player as far as the global trade is concerned and so on, but the geopolitics and the geopolitical debates and the direction that uh, global politics are taking, they do suggest that Africa actually has a major role to play. And the regions that neglect the role of Africa on the global geopolitics, they do so really at their own peril. Now, if you link that... Then... Musioka says the U.S. and its allies know they're going to need Africa on their side for something much bigger than the conflict in Eastern Europe. He says America's done plenty of great things for Africa in recent times, not least being its PEPFAR initiative. The president's emergency plan for AIDS relief has saved millions of African lives since 2003. But, he adds, while the U.S. has provided medicines and encouraged good governance and human rights in Africa, Beijing has usurped it on the economic front, providing Africans with development they can see and touch. China has been very pragmatic even before the Belt and Road Initiative that China has rolled out across the continent. And of course, we've seen massive rollout of rail and road and power plants and so on. With, with that approach... Musioka says China's relentless expansion into Africa is already harming the U.S. politically and economically. He says Biden's intelligent and sensitive enough to realize that Beijing's hold on large swaths of Africa must be loosened. U.S. is beginning to get nervous that this is likely to change the global game as far as the economy and trade is concerned. And it's not just China and U.S., by the way. India is the third largest trade partner. We've seen also Japan with the African Union and Japan Summit. We've seen the European Union, U.K. as well. And this is all the efforts to try and make sure that none of these blocks are left behind when it comes to increasing their footprint. It's really a new form of... So says Musioka, when U.S. officials say the summit's not about countering China, not many and certainly not African leaders themselves, believe them. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. On more on the U.S.-Africa summit, Alex Vines, the director of the Africa program at Chatham House, tells me that the Africa-U.S. Leaders Conference next week will revitalize U.S. ties with the continent following a nosedive in the relations that occurred during the presidency of Donald Trump. Yeah, so the, the state of the U.S.-Africa relationship under the Biden administration is warmer than under the Trump one. So Biden has tried to kind of reconfigure existing assets and make them more effective on the African continent. But the uh, underpinning of Biden's Africa strategy really hasn't differed really to, to, to what had happened under Trump, which is about geopolitical competition and particularly containment of Russia and particularly China. 
And so there's been consistency between uh, Democrat administrations and, and, and Republican ones in that regard. The difference is that the head of state, President Biden, is more interested in Africa personally than his predecessor was. You just mentioned uh, China, the elephant in the room. But not only China, it's Russia, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, France, and all these countries which also have these kind of summits, and they have used it very effectively to demonstrate their priorities towards Africa. How different should the U.S. handle this summit to kind of uh, keep up with what other countries have been doing so far? That's a, that's a good question. So... There is a bit of a beauty contest going on. You're, you're absolutely correct. The European Union had its Africa summit earlier this year. The Russians had postponed theirs. The Japanese, who are the pioneer of these summits, had their summit, TICAD, uh, in, in Tunis, Tunisia, in, in August. And next year, the United Kingdom might have its second UK-Africa investment summit. So it is crowded. But what is clear is that African leaders and heads of government, they do like going to Washington and, and interacting with the President of the United States. That is an invitation that, that, that people welcome. And so there's been a, a more or less 100% take up of the invitations. In fact, 100% from what I can see, which is not what some of these other summits find. Um, there's usually a drop off rate or a delegation. So let's, let's go back to uh, China. China uh, stands as a single largest trading partner of the continent. What I do think is that, that China's engagement in the African continent is changing. The era of big state-backed big loans is over, and China is becoming more discerning on where it's going to be lending its money. So that, I think, is an important uh, departure. The reality is that, as you've said, a, a variety of different international partners uh, want to be engaged with, with the African continent uh, for commercial and political reasons and for strategic reasons, including about supply chains and strategic minerals. And my sense from African governments, including the one that, you know, I'm talking to Af uh, Mozambican officials here in Maputo, where I am at the moment, is that they want diversity. They, they don't want a set menu. They don't want to be pigeonholed on whether they're supporting the East or the West or, 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 or the North. You know, they, they want to go a la carte. They want choice. And so a bit of China and a bit of the United Emirates, a bit of Turkey, and certainly a bit of the United States and more United States is actually in their interest. And that's what they're looking for. And lastly, the United States uh, contribution seems not to be highlighted as much. I mean, we can go back, you know, with the cultural programs, the Fulbright program, the Peace Corps, you know, PEPFAR. Uh, indeed. I mean, if you look at Gates and some of the foundations and MacArthur and, and Ford Foundation and others, you know, they're deeply involved, faith groups deeply involved in this continent. So there's plenty of positive memory of United States engagement here, especially through philanthropy. So uh, I think it, it is about how does the U.S. revitalize its ties with the continent following the nosedive in relations that occurred during the presidency of Donald Trump and the new uh, Africa strategy that, that was unveiled earlier this, this year it, it is part of that effort. And the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington uh, next week is a spearhead of that initiative. Uh, and as I've said, it's very telling that nobody has said no to the invitation. Everybody wants to attend.
That was Alex Vines, the director of the Africa program at Chatham House, speaking with me from the capital of Mozambique, Maputo. In Qatar, today, quarterfinal action is underway. At this moment, Croatia and Brazil are on the pitch battling for a slot in the semifinals. But still, uh, what, uh, 67 minutes into the game, no score. But this Croatia fan is confident of his team. I'm very optimistic about today's game. Croatia always wins and we, we hope for the best and we are, we are going, going to the next stage. Brazil is going home tomorrow. But this man thinks his Brazil will be going to the semis. I'm very excited for the game. Uh, I hope Brazil win 3-0 in the, the first half for like the, the, last, the last game and only wait for Argentina or Holland for the semi-final. Later today, the Netherlands and Argentina face off. Tomorrow, we'll see the only African team still in the tournament, Morocco, take on Portugal. England and France will fight to advance. Catch up on the latest World Cup news on voaafrica.com slash World Cup and stay tuned to all your favorite VOA programs, including the sunny side of sports. And do not forget to look for our latest World Cup podcast, On Goal with Sunny and Moke Beal. We'll have an update on today's actions on African News Tonight at 1800 UTC with Sunny Young. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. In the Sahel, violence perpetrated by terrorists and violent extremists is compounding an already disastrous humanitarian situation and destabilizing the entire region, according to the United Nations. Five years ago, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger formed the joint force of the Group of Five, or G5, to counter terrorism in the Sahel. Today, despite Mali's withdrawal from the group in May, G5 remains an important component in responding to the insecurity. Nonetheless, the United States is growing increasingly concerned by the security, humanitarian, and political crises unfolding in the Sahel, said U.S. Alternate Representative for Special Political Affairs Robert Wood. The region has witnessed a dramatic increase in the strength and influence of violent extremist groups. Threats to civilians, reports of human rights abuses and violations, and levels of displacement and humanitarian need are all on the rise. As far as the United States is concerned, instability in the Sahel is firmly a security problem with a democratic governance solution. Violent extremism thrives when state authorities are absent, when the delivery of services is weak, when democracy is fragile or fleeting when justice is inaccessible, and when economic and political exclusion prevail. Population growth, displacement, and a changing climate exacerbate these governance failures by undermining traditional livelihoods and creating new competition over vital resources. Women and youth are disproportionately affected by these challenges, fueling greater inequality and injustice. The United States is further concerned by short-sighted security partnerships with the Kremlin-backed Wagner Group, whose forces are exploiting natural resources and actively undermining stability in Mali and elsewhere in Africa, said Ambassador Wood. In Mali, allegations of human rights abuses have skyrocketed as a result of Wagner operations in the name of, quote, counterterrorism, unquote. These operations often target marginalized groups. Ambassador Wood noted that Kremlin-linked disinformation and propaganda campaigns are inciting violence against U.N. personnel, 
while the Wagner Group obstructs UN peacekeepers as they work to stabilize the region, protect civilian lives, and put the country on a path to peace and democratic rule. The United States urges Sahelian governments to focus on structural drivers of instability, to build a new social compact with its people, and lay the groundwork for lasting peace and security, said Ambassador Wood. The United States stands alongside institutions working to build greater governance and security force capacities, promote sustainable development, and prevent democratic backsliding. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Joe Gill, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.